This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill är så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, yes! Yes! Actually, I didn't like that one. Yes! Yes! Welcome, everybody, to the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. This is episode three of our preview to the 2014-2015 fantasy hockey season. And before we get into things, Brian, why don't you tell our listeners about some big news related to our podcast? Yeah, we have some big news, some really exciting news. We have partnered with one of our, well, maybe I should just say, I'll come out and say it, our favorite fantasy hockey site, dailyfaceoff.com. We are now with them. We are connected. So you're going to see us pop up on there. You're going to see us over at the Nations Network, if you're not familiar with it, they've got Leafs Nation, Flames Nation, NHL Numbers. There's a Nation site for several of the Canadian teams, so you can go check it out over at the Nations Network and Daily Faceoff. So yeah, it's kind of like a bit of a new home for us, and we're really excited. So Elon, what's the show name right now? <laughs> I guess we're the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, presented by Daily Faceoff, dailyfaceoff.com. All right, our dreams have finally come true. <laughs> Yeah, but we referenced that site a lot last year, especially in regards to starting goalies and line combinations. So it's a great fit, and we're really excited to be working with Daily Faceoff. All right, so this is, again, still sort of the preseason of Fantasy Hockey Podcast. So we've done two already to start talking about next season. We talked about a bunch of the free agent signings that happened over the summer and the impacts of those, then the last episode, we just did a deep dive into some advanced stats that will help you have an edge in your pool. And understand a lot of what we talk about on shows throughout the year. Yeah, exactly. We definitely advise any listener to go back and check that one out before we get too deep into the season. For this week's episode, we're going to talk about a couple of topics. First and foremost, we're going to discuss drafting strategies. So we're still not going to be discussing specific players in depth. That's going to be the next episode, but we're just going to, in general, look into how you should go into your draft, what tactics you may want to employ, when to draft certain positions. We're going to get into all of that. That's going to be the core of this episode, and we're going to end with a couple of listener questions. But let's get into drafting strategies. So, Brian, why don't you take it away and tell us where you want to start with this? Sure. I think the most important drafting strategy that I employ is it's a lot of prep work, uh, but I think it pays off in the long run. And Elon, you might have heard of this. I think it's growing in popularity, tiering picks. 
Yeah, so that sort of helps you with this problem of there being, what, 180, 250? Obviously, it depends on how big your league is. Like, There's going to be a lot of players drafted. How are you really supposed to decide who to take in the next round? It makes things a lot easier if you do this tiering, which I've really found useful, where you sort of take a group of players and you sort of clump them together into one group and you sort of could tell yourself then, I'd be happy with anyone in this group. Right, exactly. And it also lets you focus a little more on making sure you get a player from the group instead of getting tunnel vision only for one player. And then maybe you're disappointed if they're taken right before and you don't have any backup. So tiering helps you prep because it really helps you think through. It's not just for during the draft, it's for preparing for the draft when you're really trying to compare players and how much you'd want one player over the other. You're not looking for each ranking number by number. You're just getting an idea of, well, this guy and this guy are about the same to me, and I would be okay with either one. And that's going to help you be, I think, a little more relaxed during your draft, not panic about missing out on that one guy that you want. And it's also a good way to just keep perspective, to know exactly how fast players of a certain skill are moving. So if you've got your picks tiered in a certain way, uh, let's say you have 20 or 30 players in, in each of your tiers, and you see that it's full, well, you know you can focus on maybe a positional need or a category need instead of making sure you grab someone. But if that tier is disappearing slowly and you're down to your last two or three players in the tier, then you know it's time to grab. So I think it's, it's, it's a good way to maximize your draft position so you don't jump the gun too early. Of course, you always want guys that are going to be on the top end of your tier. But ideally, if you're setting it up properly, you've got a group of 15 or 20 players who all play similar positions and similar roles and who you'd be about equally happy with drafting to your team. Yeah, exactly. And sort of to expand on one of the things you said, I think it's really valuable for this case where, like you said, let's say you have one tier, which is a bunch of centers that you think you'd be happy to get any of these centers, and you consider them somewhat equal. And then let's say there's 12 people in your pool, and it's your pick, and there's still 13 of the centers still left in that tier, but you need a defenseman also, you now you know that you could pick up your defenseman now and you'll still get one of those centers in the next round. So it helps you prioritize when you need to pick certain players based on who you know you'll still be able to get later on. Right. So that is my favorite strategy. And it's also going to save you a lot of headaches in terms of, you know, like I remember years back, I would painstakingly rank each player that I thought was going to be drafted. So, you know, up to 200 players one by one and fighting over which guy belongs ahead of who and spending way too much time doing that. This way is a little more forgiving in your preparation. You can just kind of bunch guys together, get an approximate idea. You know, choosing between tiers can sometimes be difficult, but in my experience, it's a lot easier to set up the decisions to be made on draft day than by trying to make them all, you know, a week or two weeks before. So I guess the big question now is how do you even make these tiers? Or even better, are these tiers sort of available? Is anyone publishing their suggested tiers that you could use for your draft? Well, I think tiers are really kind of a personalized thing because it's not based on straight rankings. When I'm putting my players into tiers, I'm not only looking at how many goals assists they scored last year. I'm looking at a lot of the things that we talked about on the last episode, like possession numbers and shooting percentage. And I'm also considering their situation. For example, I might be as happy with a player on the Blackhawks who's got, say, mid-level skill than a player on Florida who has high-level skill 
because maybe the guy in the Blackhawks is still going to have more chances to produce and be in a better situation or used in a more offensive role on his team. So I think when you're looking to make tiers and, and finding lists of players ranked, those are good tools to use to make your tiers, but you've got to make a lot of subjective decisions too. So all the usual sources are out there for player projections and rankings, but then it's up to you to mix in your own thoughts and analysis based on what you know, and hopefully if you listen to our show, you know enough to confidently put them into groups based on a mix of the skill they have and the opportunity that they're going to have to produce. Does that answer your question? Yeah, so you're basically saying there's not really published tiers out there because it really depends on what you need for your pool. I will mention that Dauber over at DauberHockey.com, he has a goalie list, like his like top goalies in the league to own, and he puts them into tiers. So you could use that as your goalie tiers at least. But yeah, I guess for player tiers... I'd suggest if you want to be the laziest possible, why not just, and if you're in a points-only league especially, take a projection that you trust from one of the many sources, like you said, you know, NHL, ESPN, Yahoo, they all put out projections and some of these other sites. And you could also just group people even into, you know, between 60 and 65 points, 65 and 70 points. And, you know, you could consider those people a tier if you want to be really simple about it. Yeah, that's a really rote way of doing it, and it could work for some people in some leagues. Though I will mention that when you're doing it like that, you probably should split out defensemen from forwards. And maybe that's a good way to segue into the next drafting strategy, because I think there's a lot that people can learn from understanding the difference between drafting a forward and a defenseman. Yeah, let's actually start with centers. And I think the the theme of this draft tip is going to be positional availability. And it seems obvious, but sometimes it is so tempting to grab the top guy available without realizing that there's about 15 more guys at his position that will be available in about five rounds who will do the exact same thing. And meanwhile, you might be missing out on somebody at another position that's a little less plentiful. So let's take centers. To start with, they're always the most plentiful and generally, I think, the easiest to replace. You know, of course, there are the elite centers who you can't just throw in anyone else instead of. But at some point, I found in the past in my drafts that when I'm picking centers, I tend to just lay off at one point because there are so many good ones. And the difference between, say, the 40th and the 60th ranked centers just isn't that big in a lot of cases. Also, during the season, I can usually pick up a good up-and-coming or surprising center through free agency. So center is usually the least of my concerns. The elite ones, like I said, are going to do a lot for your team, like, say, Stamkos, Crosby, Tavares. Like, goes without saying. But if I'm looking for a position to focus on, I want to see how scarce the position is. Right, yeah. And definitely, I think, in terms of scarcity, defense is that position. And it's so counterintuitive, I guess, especially for a novice drafter. Because you look at defensemen, even like the big names in the league, you know, aside from maybe the top two, which I'll get to in a second. But on average, if you could get a defenseman who could get you 50 points, that's going to be one of the top scoring defensemen in the league. And, you know, for a forward to get 50 points... That's nothing. That's a guy that's maybe even going to stay on your waiver wire, depending on how deep your league is. So novice drafters will tend to not even draft defensemen until the end because they're like, oh, I'm going to get the people who are going to get me the most points. But really, if you can get an elite defenseman, that gives you such an edge in your league. Like just looking at last year's stats, Eric Carlson and Duncan Keith had 74 and 61 points, respectively. After that, the next few defensemen were in the 50s. Then we have a few in the 40s. And then by the time we get past the 25th defenseman in the league, which was Roman Josie at 40 points, 
After that, everyone's less than 40. And so if you're in a league where you have to fill six defense spots, and let's say there's 12 people in your league, that's a pretty standard setup. That's 72 defensemen that are going to be drafted overall. And like I said, if you want someone who's going to get 40 points or higher from last season at least, you need to have people in the top 25. So imagine what an advantage you would have in your pool if you have three or four of these top 25 defensemen as opposed to having to pick from 20 to 30 point defensemen who are going to be all that's left in the last few rounds. And a handful of those top 25s you wouldn't have expected to be there. And there were some who should have been there that weren't. So I would even go a little narrower and say that you want one of the top 10 or 15 defensemen. You need one of the top 10 defensemen to win your pool. Top 10, 15, it would be great to have two because you don't want those defensive spots to just be dead spots. You need to make them work for you. Towards the end of your draft, a lot of the defensemen are of equal value, and you can usually find one or two young or surprising defensemen who can jump up and make a difference for you. But towards the bottom, there isn't a whole lot of variance between the guys available. So try and get one of those elite defensemen. That's going to be a really big deal if you're going to win your hockey pool. Yeah, and going back to what you said, Brian, about sort of replacement, if you think of a guy like Eric Carlson, 74 points last year. Imagine if you're in a league, like I mentioned before, and he got injured and you had to pick someone up as a free agent, you'd be replacing a 74-point guy for maybe a 20- or 30-point guy. As opposed to what you were saying about centers, maybe you lose a 70-point center, you could probably pick up a 50-point center, you know, if you're lucky. So just value over replacement, defense becomes so much more valuable, especially a guy like Eric Carlson, which is why we definitely support keeping Carlson on this podcast if you have the option. And before we close off this tip, I think it's important to still say that there's always value in taking the best player available. We're not trying to say that it's a good thing to take somebody who's maybe, say, one or two tiers below the top player available because they're the position you need or they're a rarer position. The best player available will always help you. You just want to make sure that you're set early on in the draft with the positions you need. And I think that's what we're advocating here with defensemen and probably goalies too. And before we move on to the next tip, I also wanted to ask you regarding positions about right wing versus left wing. So I've had this experience and maybe it's just coincidence, but in my past couple of years of playing fantasy hockey, I've found that I always seem to have really good right wingers. And when I want to pick a player up from the free agent pool, there always seems to be great right wingers and not really great left-wingers left available. And so that's made me think that I should perhaps focus more on drafting a really good left-winger in the draft because I'll always be able to find good right-wingers later on as a free agent. Do you have any experience with that at all? Like, I'll tell you a quick example, actually. Last year, at one point, I had, as my four right-wingers, Kessel, Ocposo, Martin St. Louis, and Radim Verbata. They are all only right-wing eligible. I couldn't shuffle them around at all. And at one point, Gustav Nyquist showed up as a free agent. And, you know, we talked about on our podcast how you should grab him. And obviously, in hindsight, I probably should have grabbed him, maybe dropped Verbata or something. But I didn't because he was only right-wing eligible and I didn't have any right-wing spots available while I had a couple of left-wingers that I would have happily dropped for Nyquist. So all of that to say, should I, going into next season, focus on drafting good left-wingers and maybe saving right-wingers to the end? 
Or was it just a coincidence for me that I happened to end up with these four good right-wingers? Well, if your roster specifies you need this amount of left-wingers and this amount of right-wingers, I think I would tend to make sure I'm set for left-wingers. I think towards the top, right-wing and left-wing are pretty even. But if you look further down the depth of, of wingers in the league, what I think for this year is that there's going to be more right-wingers who would be okay to have on your fantasy team than left-wingers. For example, looking at a few projections, I see left-wingers like Patrick Eliash and Carl Hagelin and Brad Richards and Andre Pallet and Jaden Schwartz and Jonathan Huberdeau as left-wing eligible guys, say around the 40 to 50 mark. And on the right-wing side, I see Valerie Nichushkin, Alice Hemsky, Justin Williams, Dustin Brown, Vladimir Tarasenko, Nell Yakupov and Radim Verbata in the same sort of range. So of the, of that group, I would prefer to take all those right wingers over all those left wingers. And at the end of the day, it might not be a bigger difference and it might be up to your personal preference, depending on what categories you need to fill in your league. Uh, but I'm going to assume that there are more good right wingers available than left wingers. And so I'm going to make sure that I get enough good left wingers to fill out my team and then take care of the right wingers all right cool yeah i'm definitely gonna try to do that next year so i don't get stuck like i was last year even though it didn't hurt me too much because i won but moving forward what's the next tip you have in terms of drafting strategies let's talk about goalies now because they're going to be a big part of your season if you don't have a good goalie who plays often enough, then you're in trouble. But it's hard to know exactly when to take them in the draft. And one thing that usually happens is your draft will go on a goalie run. Someone's going to pick a goalie and then the next person and then the next person and then it snowballs. And what you want to make sure you do is you avoid being on the end of that run. So it's up to you if you want to get it started. You know, you don't want to jump the gun too early. It's really a decision you have to make judging by the pace and rhythm of your own draft. But just to underline the importance of making sure that you get a solid number one, there are at least 10 situations across the league right now in which there is not a clear number one goalie. There's a couple more where a clear number one goalie, I feel, could be usurped by the backup and you don't want to rely on a 1a 1b situation especially if you pick up the 1a then you kind of have to go pick up the 1b option too in your draft and while i do like handcuffing the goalie options or having both goalies who are going to play on a team that 1a and 1b are going to cost you more in terms of draft position than a clear number one and a clear number two would so for me when i'm drafting it's really important for me to make sure i get an undisputed number one goalie preferably on a very good team. And it's a bonus if his backup will be easier to pick up in the later rounds of the draft. Brian, I'm actually curious why you think it matters to get the backup goalie from the team who you have the starter from. Like, let's say you picked up Henrik Lundqvist early in your pool. You were lucky to get him. And now it's later in the draft. And let's say Martin Jones is available from LA, or you could pick up Cam Talbot from New York. Like, if you think that Martin Jones is going to do better than Cam Talbot, why would you rather have Talbot just because he's the backup for Lundqvist? Because that way I'm guaranteed the starts on the New York Rangers. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. If I pick Lundqvist and I'm putting all my eggs in his basket, I need to make sure that if he gets injured or if something happens to him, I've still got a plan B. And yeah, I could get a second starting goalie who probably won't be quite as good and get that goalie's backup. But especially on a team, say like LA or New York, where the backup goalie will probably do just fine because of the team in front of them being so strong, it's kind of like an insurance policy. 
So if I'm going to spend so much money on a really nice car, I'm going to spend a little money on the side to make sure that if something happens to the car, I'll still be okay. Well, for example, last year, I ended up with Nicholas Backstrom and Josh Harding, and I made sure to pick up Darcy Kemper if I had a roster spot, and I needed all three of those roster spots to, to have that insurance because towards the end of the year, Backstrom wasn't playing, Harding was out injured, and Kemper was getting the majority of the starts. And that's one of the reasons I was able to win my pool. So I think it's really important to have a handcuff option. It's not as valuable, of course, if you're looking on a on a poor team. Like if I'm going to pick up Roberto Luongo on Florida, I'm not sure it's that important to have Al Montoya as a handcuff option. He will get the starts and maybe you need a certain amount of starts or minutes or saves to qualify in your goalie categories. And in that case, it'll help. But on a bad team, a goalie is going to have bad stats. And so it might not be quite as worth your while. Right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So in my situation, I'm actually in a league and I'm sure some of our listeners are in something similar. I'm in a 12 team league and each team gets two goalies. So only 24 goalies are going to be owned at one time during the course of the season. So there's not really going to be any market for drafting backups because there's 30 teams in the league and only 24 goalies get owned. So I'm wondering what the strategy should be in terms of, like, I definitely agree with you that I should get a good goalie right at the start. And actually, I'm going to have Varlamov as my keeper this year. I'm wondering, is it worth it to draft a really good second goalie you know, somewhat early in the draft, maybe in the mid rounds, while I could still get a starter from a decent team? Or do you think it's maybe even a nice strategy to just not draft my second goalie, save it to the end, because there's probably going to be some injury during the season where I'm going to want to pick up a backup anyways, like what happened last year with Martin Jones on LA or with Frederick Anderson on Anaheim? I think some of the answer will depend on how many goalie starts you might need to qualify in your goalie categories in your pool. But generally, I don't know. I, I think that's playing with fire. Usually in, in most pools, goalie categories account for a disproportional amount of total categories. And so I think it's important if you're going to have one thing sound on your team to win your pool for the year, you need to make sure you're set for goalie. You don't want to be an injury away from crisis. And of course, goalies are at a premium in the trade market too. It's easiest to get them through the draft unless you are wired 24-7 ready to add players and you want to deal with that stress throughout the year of being first on the draw when a new goalie situation develops and you can hurry and gamble on a backup that is going to be thrust into a starter's position. Yeah, I guess I see what you're saying. It's sort of, it's a lot more risky. It's nice to be able to get the extra forwards and defensemen and not have to worry about that second goalie. But at the same time, like you're saying, it was nice last year. I had Varlamov and Niemi for the season. I never had to worry about goalies, though it was a little bit sad to see Martin Jones available when Quick got injured and know that I couldn't take him, even though it was so clear he was going to be awesome. Yeah, well, when, when I'm drafting goalies, I look at two main things. I look at, are they the established number one? And are they on a good team? And if I can check off both those boxes, then that makes that goalie very attractive to me. Right, yeah. And in our next episode of Keeping Carlson, we'll get into specific names of goalies. We'll also talk about some of these tandems that are likely going to happen next year. You know, our opinions on whether you want to take one of Jake Allen or Brian Elliott or Gibson or Anderson. You know, we'll get into all the specific players next week. But definitely, I agree with you that if you can just get a solid starting goalie from a decent team, can't go wrong with that. 
All right, and let's close this out just with a few speedy tips. And one seems obvious, but it's so tempting every year to make this mistake. Don't swing for the fences too early. If there are proven, established NHL elite players available, do not try and pick the up-and-coming young guy who's going to be really exciting to cheer for but has no career history. I was saved from making that mistake myself last year when the person before me took Nal Yakupov in like the fourth round and I took Tyler Sagan right after. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that was like a pool deciding draft pick, I think, for my team. And there's really not much more to say other than stay calm, go with what you know. I know last year, probably a lot of people picked Nathan McKinnon really early last year. That worked out for them. Yeah, it worked out really well. And I would consider that like I'm happy about that. But don't count on that happening every time. I think people are going to have a similar inclination towards picking, say, Jonathan Drouin this year, who also was picked probably way too early in most drafts last year. Unless you're in a pool that has a prospect system or farm teams, I would not take younger guys who you don't know what they're going to do if they've only been in the league for a year or two, when you can take a guy who has an established record of producing for three, four, or five years. It's also tempting to do the same thing, not just for young guys, but for sleepers who are suddenly, you know, going to come into their own this year. Don't do that. Sleepers are really fun to pick and really fun to bet on, and that's sort of like how the whole gambling high comes from fantasy hockey. But they don't beat guys who are established and have already proven that they can do the same thing as these sleepers. They're just a little more boring because they've done it before and we know what to expect. Yeah, I think a good example this year is I'm already seeing a lot of talk about how Radim Verbata is like the best sleeper this year because he's going to be playing with the Sedins. He's probably going to get so many points. And you also see on the other side... Uh, players who did well last year. Let me just, uh, Joe Pavelski, you know, people are saying, oh, don't trust that Joe Pavelski will do as well. So I can see a lot of people now drafting Verbata over Pavelski, but for me, it still seems like Pavelski is the obvious choice. It'll be interesting to see how people will be drafting with those two players and people in similar situations. Yeah, actually, that's one of my like little sleeper pet peeves is picking that third player on a line. And in Vancouver's case specifically, we've heard several times like Mason Raymond is a sleeper. He's going to play with the Sedins. Alexander Burroughs is a sleeper. He's going to play with the Sedins. We've even had, I think, Nicholas Jensen is a sleeper. He's going to play with the Sedins. And the same thing has happened, you know, Crosby's line mates. How many of those has he gone through that everyone was, oh, pick up Bo Bennett this year or Mark Latestu? And it's just not something worth counting on when you have a, like I've said, I'm a broken record right now, but when you have a better option to go with. Okay, so what happens, Brian, when you have two guys and you really can't decide who to pick between them? You really think they're going to get around the same number of points. They seem to be in a similar situation. What sort of deeper things do you look at when you're making your drafting decision? Okay, yeah. So if I've got two guys who look about the same to me in terms of numbers and what the projections are, I have three tiebreakers. The first one is... Like I was alluding to earlier, players with a career history, they're easier to project. They're more reliable. Yes, sure, there's a chance that they won't do what they're expected to do, but it's a lot harder to figure out what somebody with little or no career history will do. So I will take the guy who has done it three or four times before over the guy who is expected to do it 10 times but has never done it yet. All right, that's tiebreaker number one. Seems very reasonable. All right, the second tiebreaker goes back to our positional talk from earlier. And this one's really simple. I'll take the guy who is eligible for more positions. It's also important to know when you're preparing for your draft, a lot of players don't have their dual eligibility 
assigned right away. Like Yahoo and ESPN usually wait till they've played, I think, three games at that position before adding the eligibility. So if you know, and there are cases around the league, I think Evgeny Malkin was one of them, if not last year than the year before, that somebody is going to have another position added. That makes them as attractive as anybody who is already listed with two positions eligible. So I look to see who can play the most positions and is the most kind of versatile and flexible player that I can use on my roster. Okay, yeah. And then I guess tied into that is also this idea of just taking the position that might be more rare, which we already talked about earlier. But barring that, yeah, if you have more positions, it's just more flexibility to move people around and take the person you want from the free agents instead of being kind of handcuffed. And the third tiebreaker is also very simple. Go with the player on the better team who's surrounded by more talent, who has a better chance of playing with better line mates and is going to see generally more opportunities to put up points. Yeah, like I could think of last year, a good example of where you could get burned by having a player that's not on a great team was like Thomas Fleischman last year, who was drafted by most teams, but he had a bit of an off year. And sometimes when a player is slumping, he can still get some points just because he's playing with other good players who are going to put up points and he'll just sort of get on that bandwagon. But with Fleischman, once he wasn't doing as well, there wasn't anyone else on Florida that was going to sort of bail him out. So you want to get someone who's going to be on like a St. Louis or a Dallas or some someone that's bound to at least get a chance to play with good players. So that's going to do it for our discussion on drafting strategies. As always, we'd love to hear from the listeners. If you have any drafting strategies that we haven't mentioned, or if you disagree with any of ours, write to us. You could either email us keepingcarlson at gmail.com, or we're very active on Twitter at keepingcarlson. We'd love to hear from you. If we don't hear from anyone, we'll just assume we are 100% correct. Yeah, well, exactly. And now let's close out the show by answering a couple of listener emails that we've received. Like I said, we always appreciate when we get reached out to and we always either answer you privately by responding to your email or to your tweet. And every once in a while, we'll read your question on the show like we're going to do right now. So Brian, who did we hear from recently? So Elon, I'm actually going to start with a question from Shad and then I'm going to give an answer from me and then an answer from Shad too. So Shad, thanks for writing in. And Shad was trying to rate prospects for his upcoming draft. He's taking over a rebuilding team and he gets the top two picks and he was using NHL equivalency numbers. Have you heard of these? No, actually we don't really talk about prospects very much on this podcast. So just to take a step back, you're referring here to a draft of players who aren't even going to play in the NHL next year? In Chad's league, they define a prospect as any player who's played less than 20 NHL games. So yeah, maybe they were drafted early on in the 2014 entry draft, or maybe they were drafted last year or the year before, and just haven't gotten that many NHL games in yet. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So it's a whole draft before the actual draft, just to get these prospects. Yes, it is. That sounds like fun. Okay, and so you were talking about player equivalency. The answer is, I think it has to do with trying to compare how a player did in the minors versus how he'll do in the NHL. Ah, that's a common misconception. And that was actually Shad's question, because he wasn't sure how much to put stock in an equivalency. So, for example, just, just to give you an idea, the ones Shad was asking about were about Sam Reinhart, Kevin Fiala, and Leon Dreisettel. And I'm not sure if I have the pronunciation right there, but hey, we do our best. Yeah, these are prospects. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not expected to know them yet. So each of these guys is assigned a number of points, and that's their NHL equivalency. So Reinhardt's at 43, Fiala is at 41, and Dreisettel is at 40 points. 
And so Chad's question was, like, what does this exactly mean? Does this mean that they're going to come into the league next year and put up that many points? Because he was specifically concerned that this guy from the Swedish Elite League, Kevin Fiala, who was picked 11th overall by Nashville, is showing up second overall according to these equivalency numbers. So to answer Chad's question and, and clear up what you said, equivalency numbers are not really a projection tool. They're more used to compare players across different leagues. So it's a good way to see what a player's performance might be worth in the Swedish Elite League compared to a player's performance in the AHL. There's also equivalency formulas for the KHL, all the leagues in the CHL, and there are more and more being added for the various leagues around North America and the world, like the USHL. Etc. But the key thing to remember is that equivalencies aren't projections. If a player's NHL equivalency is 43 points, that doesn't mean you can expect them to come into the NHL and score 43 points. You can just expect that the worth of what they produced in their league was equivalent to 43-point production in the NHL. Does that make sense? Right. So you're saying that these equivalency numbers are meant to compare players in the minors, not to predict how they'll do in the NHL. Yeah. And Shad answered his own question regarding Kevin Fiala showing up between Reinhardt and Dreisaitl in his prospect NHL equivalency rankings. And he wrote back to say that he ran the numbers using the equations. And I'm actually going to put up a link in the show notes to help you learn a little bit more about NHL equivalencies, uh, one to Behind the Net, and a couple to our partners over at NHLnumbers.com. So Shad actually dug into these and ran the numbers, and he kind of Notice that Fiala's NHL equivalency was so high because it was based on a small sample size. He had a really great 17 games played, and in Chad's words, looks like the second coming of Jesus on skates. However, that doesn't necessarily put him ahead of Dreisaitl or, say, Johnny Goudreau in terms of how you might actually value a prospect according to their potential to produce in the NHL. All right. Well, thanks, Chad, for asking and also providing an interesting answer to your question. The next listener question we want to address on the show is from Tim. He wrote, I'm in a league that uses blocks as a stat. I'm very weak at blocks and was wondering if you guys think there is a correlation between a Corsi score and player usage in relation to blocks. So he's asking, can all these advanced stats that we talked about last week help to predict blocks? Yeah, and they might, but you've got to use them in a bit of a counterintuitive way. I think if you want to get a guy who's going to get you a lot of blocks, you want to look for a guy with low Corsi. You want a guy who is not having the puck or whose team is not in possession of the puck while he's on the ice. You want all the shot attempts to be coming against. That's going to give him more opportunities to shot block. Shot blocking isn't really something that a great player can do all the time on any team. You have to be on a team that is giving up a lot of shot attempts. So take a look at the block leaders from last year, and it's generally heavy men at defensemen on poor possession or Corsi team. Teams like Andrew McDonald from when he was on the Islanders, Chris Butler and Chris Russell from Calgary, Mike Weber from Buffalo, Carl Grunerson from Toronto. So blocks is one of those stats that you kind of have to make inferences for, and, and a player can't just go out and get blocks. You know, you can't just score blocks. You have to have the opportunity to score blocks. It's kind of like how high Corsi correlates with more giveaways. A guy who's always driving plain possession is always likely to have way more opportunities to give away the puck than the player who can never get the puck in the first place. So I think if you're looking to maximize your block numbers, you're going to want guys on low Corsi teams, which is problematic for most other categories. And one way to maybe get around this is to look for somebody who plays in a penalty killing or shut down defenseman kind of role on a good hockey team. Yeah, or you could do what I think a lot of people do is and just sort of forget about blocks. 
try to win your other categories and maybe you'll do better in the long run by doing that. But I guess that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, well, no, I think that's important. You don't want to compromise the rest of your ability to win because you really want to win the blocks categories. It's kind of like a, a Pyrrhic victory if you put all this energy into accumulating blocks and then lose the rest by one or two points because all the guy was doing was blocking shots and not much else. There are certain categories that you kind of maybe should accept to lose and also some that like you can make a late week pickup to try and catch up in. And that, that was my strategy with blocks last year. If I was in range of my opponent in blocks in the last two or three days of a matchup, I would go to the free agent pool if I had a roster spot and move to burn and pick up somebody who might win the week in that category for me. There are tons available because they're generally on bad teams and don't put up points. Thanks for the email, Tim. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. Presented by Daily Faceoff. Yes, exactly. Definitely we want our listeners to know that Daily Faceoff is a great resource that you can check out to help you prepare for your pool. And also during the course of the regular season as they'll always be updating you on starting goalies and line combinations and all that great stuff. Like I mentioned at the top of the show... Next week is going to be our big extravaganza player-specific episode where we're going to give you all of our opinions on who you should draft, who you should avoid, players that we think are going to be potential sleepers, potential busts. So definitely make sure you're subscribed to our feed, either on iTunes or using whatever podcasting software you use. And if you're using iTunes, by the way, we definitely appreciate a five-star review. It helps people find the show. Also, like I've mentioned, you can get in contact with us by emailing us, keepingcarlson at gmail.com, following us on Twitter, at keepingcarlson. But that's going to do it. In addition to Daily Faceoff, we also use some other resources to prepare for the show. So as we cue that outro music, Brian, why don't you go and read the credits? Sure. We'd also like to extend our thanks to Behind the Net, NHLnumbers.com, Dauber Hockey, and Yahoo Sports Fantasy Hockey. Good job this week, Brian, and listeners will... Talk to you all in a week. Goodbye, everybody.